vaccinated as well. So I'm not too worried. I'm going to be reading from Mark uh, 2.23 through 3.6, and this is out of the NASB. And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need? And he and his companions became hungry. How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for anyone to eat except priests. And he also gave it to those who were with him. Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He entered again into the synagogue and there a man was there whose hand was withered. They were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath or to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out in the hand. His hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we are so thankful that you came. You knew that Jesus couldn't stay on earth forever, but your Holy Spirit has and will. We are so thankful that you do your good work on the Sabbath. Lord, we pray today on this holy day that we would hear your words, that we would feel your spirit, that we would know we are loved, um, or that we would receive healing, that we would be open to coming forward, to asking for your healing, to receiving it. Um, yeah, Lord God, just work in our hearts today. Amen. Well, I don't even know if I introduced myself earlier. My name's Cameron. Um, I am one of the pastors here, and it is seriously a privilege to be with you all. Um, start us off. Um, I think it's generally true to say that, that the purpose of something um, ought to determine that thing's function, whether, whether that's in engineering or design or even relationships or the organization of, like, structure of an organization or whatever. Um, ideally, whatever the thing is for de determines how it works and what it does. And, and if that's not the case, then there's going to be some discord and some weirdness. And I had a good reminder of this the other day. I was, I was playing Play-Doh with my two kids. I, I have two kids. Uh, Lane is four. Ezra is two. I have no idea if they're watching right now. If you guys are, hey. Love you guys. Um, we were playing Play-Doh. And uh, as, as children like to do with Play-Doh, like basically instantly, we're getting all the, we're opening the little jars and we're, are they called jars? What's the, what's that? Cans? Ah, that seems suspect. Cans? Contain, Play-Doh things. <laughs> Cans sounds great. Um, whatever the things are called, we're getting them out, we're getting the Play-Doh out. And of course, instantly the kids like start just mashing different colors together, right? I've, 
not full bore, but I've got some, I've got some OCD tendencies, you know, inside here. And I'm instantly like, no, 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 you don't, you don't make, no, 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 that's blue, that's red. Do not, don't do that. And I'm just, a, I'm a total buzzkill with the Play-Doh. Um, and I, I catch myself feeling that, I catch myself thinking that, and then I, pretty quickly, as soon as I realize what's going on, I, I chuckle to myself and I just like chill out and let the kids play how they want to play. Why? Because the purpose of this time, the purpose of, hey, the purpose of Play-Doh is just for kids to play with, right? However they want. Secondarily, maybe more, maybe primarily, the, the purpose of this time is for me and my kids to hang out and to have fun. And uh, me trying to police that the colors don't get, you know, kept apart, it's totally antithetical to the whole reason we're even sitting at this table, right? That's an example. Purpose should determine the function. That's what Jesus is going to be getting at in, in uh, two of these stories. So we're, we're, uh, we're finishing up the second chapter of Mark, getting into the first part of chapter 3. And just as a heads up, we are going to uh, take a break from Mark starting next week. And we're, we're going to take a few weeks to just uh, explore some of the Psalms together. Um, we're going to do that. Mark, Mark is... At the pace we're taking it, Mark is going to be a long book, and so we'll periodically stop. We might do some Old Testament. We might do something topical. You know, we're going to take some breaks, and we'll return to Mark. So next week, get into the Psalms for a bit. Um, but up to this point, we, we've been in a run of stories in Mark where, where Jesus has basically gotten into like a, a controversy of some kind. Um, and so there, there have been three previously. The first was the story that Josh Wilder taught us where Jesus heals this paralytic, and then he says something even more controversial. He says, oh yeah, but the, the harder thing to do is to actually forgive sins. And I can do that. Claims to be able to forgive sins. Um, then there was the story where Jesus uh, calls Ma- uh, Levi the tax collector to himself to follow him. And then is just like having these, these meals, these dinners in the homes, in the home of Levi with other tax collectors and sinners. So the controversy there is about what kind of company Jesus keeps. Jesus, why are you fraternizing with those kinds of people? What the religious leaders ask. And then last week, that was the story where the, the Pharisees come to him and they're like, hey, uh, you guys aren't fasting the same way that, that the disciples of the Pharisees are, the disciples of even John the Baptist are. What is going on? And Jesus says, it's not time to fast. It's time to celebrate while I'm in your midst. And so they keep asking these why questions. Why do you do this, Jesus? Why do you do this? Why do you do this? And we've got two more why questions today that are kind of the like fulcrum point. They're the, they're the point kind of where things really start to tip over between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. Uh, tension was building and building and building, and the end result of this building tension at the end of this story is going to be the plot to kill Jesus. This is in Mark's gospel where that, that happens. They say, you know what? We've had enough of this guy. It's time to start planning his death. That's where we're going. So let's see why. First, we're going to look at the, the first Sabbath controversy, which is about this, the Lord who is going to feed his companions. Verses 23 through 28. I'll read it again. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, Here's here it is. Why? Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did? I just love that. I love the, I love Jesus' attitude here. Have you never, of course they've read it, right? 
He's needling them. Have you never read? Are you not familiar with your Bible? Have you never read what Jesus did, what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God, that's the temple, in the time of Abiathar the high priest, and he ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. You know that story? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. So we get the fourth why question here. Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? What is the issue here? They're they're walking through a grain field, and they're picking these heads of grain and eating them. Well, the issue was obviously all about the Sabbath. First, first we have to note the importance of the Sabbath. I, I just like this quote from, from commentator uh, James Edwards. I'm going to read this. He said, most of the world's religions venerate sacred places. Islam honors Mecca, Hinduism, the Ganges River, Shintoism, the island of Japan. Judaism has venerated, venerated Jerusalem and especially the temple as sacred space, but it venerated something beyond it, perhaps above it. Time, the Sabbath, the two observances above all that defined Jews and set them apart from the nations were circumcision and the Sabbath, the Sabbath which extended from sunset Friday until sunset Saturday. So the Sabbath is, is, is perhaps the most important religious practice in all of Judaism. It's, it, it's the hallmark of faithfulness to the Torah for the average Jew. Radically important. Um, secondarily, you have to note, not only was, was the command to observe the Sabbath and to abstain from work, which is there in the law of Moses, radically important, but by this time, it had begun to sort of be codified into more and more complex rules. So, so there, there, there are multiple commands around the Sabbath in, in the Old Testament itself, but they had, they had those, those commands about avoiding labor had grown over time into this complicated and complex like web of guidelines and traditions trying to answer that question like what is work and what isn't work? If the command is to stay away from work, we, we need more definition on okay, well, how do we define that? How do we make sure that we're actually honoring this crucial practice? And so different groups had begun to to, to create more commentary on this and different laws and rules and there would become like this more complex system over and above what, uh, what God had said in the Torah. And so here's the deal. They are picking grain. And at this point, it had been established that to do this, to pluck the grain in this way, to eat this, food, to eat this way on the Sabbath was work. So they're violating the principle of the Sabbath. Why? Jesus, why are your disciples not keeping the law? And to answer, Jesus appeals to the example of David. He, he implicitly compares himself to David. He's like, haven't you seen when David did this? I'm, I'm just following in the footsteps of David. And he's, it's probably not a coincidence. We know theologically, time and time again, Jesus is referred to as the new David. He's, he's the one who's fit to sit on David's throne, to rule from it. And then he, he kind of puts his understanding of the function and purpose of the Sabbath, uh, or at least the law in general, on par with David's. And he tells this story about this, this bread. What's going on with this bread? So some of you might know about it, some of you might not, but there were these 12 loaves of bread that were placed in the holy place every Sabbath that were meant to be this reminder. 
every time they had to bake 12 loaves and they'd, they'd arrange them in there. And it was this reminder of God's sustenance and his provision for the nation. Um, and so they, they, they sat there all week and then they were replaced every Sabbath. And um, basically because they sat so close to the presence of God, you couldn't just discard them. You didn't just throw them away. You didn't feed them to the birds or whatever. The only way they could be disposed of was, if, was for the priests to eat them at the temple, on the temple premises. When, when something is consecrated, holy like that, you don't just discard it. It has to be uh, carefully disposed. In this case, eaten by the priests. And so um, David, David, the anointed king, um, his determination at this time was that he had the authority because him and his companions were starving. They had the authority to come and to take that bread and they were get granted permission uh, and to eat it. So he had the authority to care for his people even with the sacred bread. And Jesus is essentially claiming the same authority here. And so Jesus gives a principle. He gives a principle uh, right there in verse 27. The Sabbath was made for man not man for the Sabbath. And his point is this. The, the Sabbath, the whole idea of, of, of Sabbath rest is meant to serve the people of God. It's meant to be a sign of God's goodness toward them. It's to hey, set down your responsibilities and rest. And trust, trust that I'm going to provide for you. You don't have to fight and claw and dig and grapple constantly. I am going to take care of you. Take a day where you just rest in me. Stop your work. Um, the point is to care for people, to give them rest, to give them peace. And hindering the, their ability, in this case, to, 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 to just feed themselves. And it's very simple. It's not, a, it's not hard work. The simple way to take, take these heads of grain is to, is to very much violate the spirit of the Sabbath. That's Jesus' point. The, the excessive codifying of this idea, don't work on the Sabbath, to the extent that these guys had done it, was to begin to distort the very purpose of it. If you're having to stress constantly about what is and isn't work, you're missing the plot. You're missing the plot of the Sabbath. If everything's become stressful and anxious and you can't even like feed your friend and when you're out in a field after you know, traveling, like some, something is wrong here. You're missing the spirit. And I, I like what, what Keller, Tim Keller says here in, in his book on Mark. He, he says, Jesus affirms, even celebrates the original principle of the Sabbath, the need for rest. So Jesus isn't saying, look, the Sabbath doesn't matter. This is unimportant. You don't have to care about this stuff. This is all goofy, old stuff. I've come to replace it. That's not what Jesus says. He's not throwing out the whole thing. He celebrates the original purpose of the Sabbath, the need for rest, but he squashes the legalism around its observance. This whole system that had grown up around it, that had begun to even distort what the thing was for. And Keller says, and Jesus does it by pointing to his own identity. And that's what this last line here is. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. And Jesus is making three crazy claims here. I don't know if they hit you uh, the way they would have hit his hearers, but they're, they're crazy. The first is that Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. And that, that is a title from Daniel full of messianic, divine significance. Um, it, it, it's connected to the idea of Jesus' divinity. It's connected to his messiahship. Um, he's claiming to be this, this, this eschatological end times figure that Daniel prophesied about. Jesus says, that's me. I'm the son of man. 
That's crazy. Number two, Jesus says, the Son of Man, me, is Lord. Is Lord. Kurios in the Greek. He says, I am Lord. That alone is huge. Number three, I'm not just Lord in the abstract or in general. I'm Lord even of the Sabbath. Yes, I, yes. How scandalized you just felt when I called myself Lord, you should feel that way. Because <laughs> yes, even of the Sabbath, I am the Lord. I am Lord even of the Sabbath. His, ex- his authority extends, Jesus claims, even over the most significant religious practice in Israel. He is the ultimate authority on how to rightly understand Sabbath, what is and isn't permissible. Uh, in effect, it's like, don't, don't question my understanding of the Sabbath. I'm the one who invented this. But before, uh, before the seven days of creation were up, I had instituted this day of rest. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Um, and Jesus is not rejecting, again, the importance of the Sabbath here, but he is claiming the authority to dictate just what is and isn't you know, allowed or lawful on the Sabbath. And this is crazy. So, 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 either, so with this statement, Jesus is backing anyone who cared at all about the law, about Moses, about the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. He's backing them all into a corner here. Because either he is the new David who has the right to do this kind of thing, either he is the prophesied son of man, either he is God in the flesh, either he is the Lord of the Sabbath. In which case, we better listen to him. Or, if he's not, he needs to be killed. This is crazy, what you're saying, Jesus. You're claiming an authority that no one, no one ought to claim. So which is it? Even right now, we, from our cultural position, this story doesn't hit us the same way, but I pose the question to you, which is it? Just for you, you don't answer out loud, but what do you think? Is he the Lord of the Sabbath? If so, bow. If not, fight him. Reject him. Mock him. Get away from him. Don't let him have a single inch of your allegiance. If he's lying or he's a lunatic, like C.S. Lewis said, get away from him. But if he's the Lord of the Sabbath, everything's different. Practical question here. This isn't focus of this sermon, but should Christians observe the Sabbath? What do you think? Yeah. Yes. I think we'd be in, in trouble to, to, read, to take this text and go, oh, therefore Sabbath doesn't matter. In the sense that Jesus affirms here and the dignity that Jesus gives, the, gives, to, gives to the Sabbath, I think we ought to continue the practice. Remember, a day of rest was written into creation itself by the modeling of God before the law of Moses ever came. Moses brought structure to it and guidelines and all that kind of stuff, law around it. But before that, God led by example. Seventh day is a day of rest. And I, I, I don't see any reason why we ought to reject that example. The people of God ought to take a day to rest, to rejoice, to celebrate, to Again, to affirm the God who can provide for your needs and for mine. That we don't have to white-knuckle every minute of every day to do it. He will do it. He has done it. Yes, a, a Sabbath day is good, but I think we do well to remember 
not in the legalistic sense that these folks were advocating for. And in fact, it's interesting that the early Christians began to migrate um, from, from kind of the Saturday Sabbath that was customary to a Sunday Lord's Day observance. Um, especially you think about the, the, um, the Greek, the Gentile Jews, who didn't have a Sabbath you know, background as they came to faith in Christ. They weren't going to approach it the same way. And so we had this interesting migration throughout church history where just the meaning of the thing got changed and, and is different. But yes, I think we ought to celebrate a Sabbath, but not this way. And I think, I think that's obvious. So we also do well to remember if Jesus truly is the Lord of the Sabbath, then true Sabbath rest is found in Jesus himself. His final sacrifice for your sins and for mine frees us from any kind of religious striving in order to try to please God. Um, in Christ, then, we are deep, we are free to deeply rest. We don't have to work for his approval. He is our Sabbath. He's accomplished our Sabbath. And that applies now as you're going about your day. I, I think it's good and wise for you to set a day, maybe Sunday, to Sabbath, to rest, to not to work, to rest. But then as you're going about your other days, even then we get to be aware of the presence of Christ in our lives through his spirit who is our Sabbath rest. Even in your most stressful point of the week, rest in him. Find an uncommon source of joy and peace and hope in him. And more than that, this reminds us that he's going to be our Sabbath rest into eternity future. A day is coming when all strivings will cease. When we're face to face with the Lord. Uh, Will we still have jobs? I, I kind of think so in the new creation. Um, but it is not going to be like the toil and the suffering and the striving like we have now because we will be in the re perfectly recreated new heavens and new earth with Him amongst us, free from sin. That'll be a day of rest. That'll be, that'll be a lot of days of rest. It's going to be beautiful. So a day of rest in the here and now, it's good. It's a reminder of who God is. It's a reminder of his loving provision for us. It's modeled for us by God himself in Genesis 1. We should do it. Uh, but we have to be careful not to let it become whatever it is that this, <laughs> this thing became uh, for these folks who are challenging Jesus. So that's the first story. Why are you doing this, Jesus? Well, don't you know David? And don't you know that Sabbath is actually just made for man? Not man for the Sabbath. And by the way, I'm the Lord, even of the Sabbath. Listen to me on these things. Story one. Here's story two. A second day. Again, he enters the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. Probably some kind of paralysis. An unusable hand. They watched Jesus. The Pharisees watched Jesus to see whether he would heal this man on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to him, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at each of them in anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to them, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. And we'll pause there. Look at the Pharisees in this story. It says they closely watched Jesus. The same Greek word is sometimes used for spying. It's this like kind of like intense like really eyeing someone, really watching what they're going to do. And they're watching him, not because they're like, oh, what's he going to do? They're watching him so that 
they might accuse him. You see how the dynamic is now shifted here? It's not just, why are you doing this, why are you doing that? It's like, we're, 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 we're putting you under the microscope and we're going to find something we can nail you with, Jesus. Commentator said this, in the teachings of the Jewish legal scholars, minor cures were not permitted on the Sabbath. Of course, right? Now it's like, <laughs> yeah, of course. Any, anything that might, like this minor little thing that might help someone, not permitted. Though saving a life was a different matter. Um, even the strictest observers of Sabbath allowed compromising the Sabbath to save life or to fight in a defensive war. The rule against cures applied to physicians, however, not to healings wrought by God. And Pharisees disputed amongst themselves whether prayer for the sick was permitted on the Sabbath. Isn't that sick? Sab- Jesus' opponents are therefore going considerably beyond the standard Jewish rules to try to convict him. Jesus was no physician. He was a miracle worker. He, was in, he had the power of God. To heal someone would never be a violation of Sabbath principle. Um, and note that they, they, they're not even questioning Jesus' power to heal. It's not mockery. Like, who's this guy think he is? Power to heal. They believe he can heal. Their hearts are so sick, they're just hoping he'll do it at the wrong time so they can trap him. They do not care at all about this injured man in their midst. They just want to trap Jesus. Do you know that thing that happens when you're so bothered by somebody that everything they do begins to bother you? You ever been, been that way with someone? You might have someone in your life right now that it does like all sins of proportion is gone. They could just eat their cereal the wrong way and you're like kicking over the, the chair. You're like, I, I hate that. Let alone if it's something more serious that you just react disproportionately. I, I hate them. I hate everything they stand for. I, that's happened with me. This ir- irrationality creeps in and, and you're no longer dealing with them as a human being who, yeah, maybe has some annoying quirks or whatever. Yeah, maybe they're sinful, just like I am. But it's something else. You've, you've lost the ability to treat them as a person and anything that they do is just going to push you over the edge. Sometimes marriages operate in that mode for a long time. And that's tragic. Maybe you've got a relationship like that right now. And you can relate to this. You're just looking to catch them. What's the next dumb thing they're going to do? I can hold it against them. This is where the Pharisees are now with Jesus. And you know what they're trying to do? There's one of those great, the way Mark phrases this. You know what they want to do? They want to accuse Jesus. You know of any other accusers in the Bible? The title is Satan. One of the most common titles. The accuser. So it's here in the subtle wordplay that we see they've lost all sense of priority when it comes to their faith in God and their response to Jesus, their response to God Himself. Their faith is turning in on itself and it's curdling and they find themselves in the seat of Satan even accusing God in the flesh. Not just accusing Him, wanting to accuse Him. Looking for something to accuse Him with. This is bad. This is dark. So Jesus asked them a question. Another, he poses the question to them again. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? His question is asking with the understanding, he's, gonna heal, he's about to heal this man, and in his, uh, his omniscience, he knows, you know who's about to do some killing on the Sabbath? These people. 
the very next verse is going to tell us, verse 6 is going to tell us that they're going to go and they're going to plot how to destroy him. So he's, he's just laying the cards on the table. You guys are so worked up about this. You're upset with me? You're about to go plot murder of the Son of God, the Lord of the Sabbath, on the Sabbath. The answer should be clear. What is lawful to do on the Sabbath? If it's the ultimate day of goodness, peace, rest, and life, it should be clear. Helping this man should be an obvious good. One commentator said a litmus test of true versus false religion, not the only litmus test, but a litmus test is its response to injustice. We could add one's response to someone's pain, to their suffering, to their need is a good indicator. It's like the words of James, James 1.27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. It's the heart of genuine religion, genuine spirituality. Love God and love your neighbor. But they won't answer. Jesus asked them a question. Okay, what's good to do on the Sabbath? They're silent. They won't even answer that question. And they realize probably they're trapped. And the thing that they wanted to catch him in is just so obviously good (laughs) that they should support if they can step outside of their fury and their confusion and their hatred for a moment, they'd see it, but they don't. They won't allow themselves to. It's just a powerful moment of letting your anger begin to corrode a good thing until you find yourself on the opposite side of what you thought. There's a quote from a movie. I'm not even going to mention the movie because I'm getting self-conscious about it. Some of you will recognize it. But, it. but it's a profound quote. One character says to another character, I won't say who or how or when or where, he says, I know the rage, listen to this, I'm serious. I know the rage that drives you, that impossible anger strangling the grief until the memory of your loved ones is just poison in your veins. And one day you catch yourself wishing the person you loved had never existed so you'd be spared your pain. It's not the most highbrow movie that quote comes from, but that is a profound point your hatred begins to corrode, that you wish the person that you love that you're grieving never was even born. That happens. We get twisted around this stuff. We lose our ability to even see it for what it is. They can't answer him. And Jesus looked at them with anger. Anger. Anger can either be a grave sin or it can be a deep good depending on what it's directed toward. Who is this anger directed toward? These religious hypocrites who would deny a man in significant need the help that he requires. These leaders who, who, who sincerely believe that they are especially faithful to God but here reveal themselves to misunderstand and misprioritize the heart of God for Judaism's most central religious practice. And they're seeing God in the flesh, doing the opposite, perfectly representing the heart of the Father to them. And it doesn't move them at all. Their hearts are hardened. And so Jesus is angry. Same word that sometimes gets translated anger, same word that sometimes gets translated wrath. You could say Jesus is wrathful here. Is this good or is this bad? It's bad if you're them. This is good, though. 
Jesus gets angry, and that is good news, that he's not dispassionate, and that he doesn't care, that he doesn't have a furious moral compass when injustice comes into his view. And we will not always, when we read the Bible, we're not always going to understand the anger or the wrath of God in every instance. I, just as much as anybody, get confused by it. There's passages where I go, oh my gosh, what is that? How do I make sense of that? And we're going to talk about some of that in our psalm series, actually quite, quite intentionally. Um, but I submit to you, though we might not understand it, a God who is passionate about goodness, righteousness, and judgment, justice, and even judgment is what we have to have if we're going to have any genuine hope. How horrible would it be if Jesus looked at every act of evil in the world and said, oh, that's fine. That's fine. It's not what he does. It's not what he does. He is right to hate the spirit that's in front of him here. Because he loves people. (laughs) And he hates that which would harm them. So what happens? Well, Jesus commands the man to stretch out his hand. And don't, don't look over the fact that that's an act of faith Jesus is asking of here. It'd be embarrassing if you're, if you had a paralyzed hand, maybe it's curled up, unusable, and in front of all these people, including these religious authorities, to stretch out your hand. I, <laughs> I'd probably be like, that's humiliating. No, I would just walk away. But this is Jesus. And this man must have trusted. He can do it. So he stretches it out, and just like that, his hand is restored at the words of Christ. It's the kind of power Jesus has. The man is instantly supernatural, supernaturally healed by Jesus, not, not through a doctor in this case. Doctors are great. Grateful for them. We need them. That's com- the common grace of God in the world. This is the active, intentional, supernatural grace of God healing this man in this case stretched it out, his hand was restored. So what happens? Here's where we finish. Pharisees went out, and immediately they held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Cards on the table. It's time to kill Jesus. Why? Because he cared for this man. This was the final straw. They'd seen him claiming to be able to forgive sins. They'd seen him fraternizing with people he shouldn't be. They'd seen him refusing to fast and be as pious as they thought he ought to be. Saw him celebrating when they thought it was inappropriate. They saw him violating their understanding of the Sabbath. And they saw him draw increasingly big crowds while he's doing all this. And they had had enough. And it's interesting that the Pharisees and the Herodians, two groups that were actually hated each other, Pharisees who were trying to bring Israel back to a sense of purity and serious fidelity and faithfulness to the law, and the Herodians who basically just compromising with Rome. These two disunified factions, you know what they got unified around? Hatred of the Lord. Brings them together. And they plot the deeply religious and the scandalously irreligious together were united in their hatred of Jesus and they plot how to kill him. 
a totally unjustified reaction in terms of what's actually written in the law of Moses about these things. Jesus had done nothing wrong and he had actually done something worthy of their praise and celebration. And on the Sabbath day, no less, they say, we're going to kill him. And that's what the radical grace of God often produces in people. Um, It produces either joyous celebration or hard-hearted rejection. Usually not neutrality. Usually when people come face-to-face with Jesus, it's not like, eh, take him or leave him. You leap for joy or you shake your fist. It scandalizes the legalist who says, I can earn salvation by myself. I don't need you, Jesus, because Jesus is saying, no, you, there's nothing you can do to save yourself. There's nothing you can do to be righteous enough to stand before the God of the universe on judgment day. But I've done everything for you. And I give it to you as a free gift. Free. Just take it. It's by trusting me. And it also scandalizes the libertine who says, what are you talking about? I have no need of grace. I can live however I want. There's no judge waiting for me on the other end. I will do whatever I want. They're scandalized by by the, the grace that says, hey, this grace is for you, but you need it. You have to take it. You have to take it. Jesus says, you both need me. The legalist and the libertine. Religion and lawlessness. Jesus is the answer to both. And the cross is now on its way in the Gospel of Mark. We now know as we continue to read through these stories, the plot is being developed to send the Lord of the Sabbath to death. And isn't it just poetic and beautiful and the way of Jesus that Jesus decides to heal this man at the cost of his own life? Isn't that amazing how these stories always do that? The gospel is woven into the fabric. What are you going to do, Jesus? We're watching you. I'm going to heal. And I know you're going you're to kill me <laughs> because of it. That's who I am. That's who our God is, friends. All the way down. He's going to trade places with this man, his life for, for his. The Lord's for the broken's. To heal those in need, Jesus will be harmed. To bring life to those who are dead, Jesus will be killed. That's the gospel. Him for us. Received as a free gift of grace. The only thing we have to do is say, yes, I'll take it. I believe, I'll trust, I'll follow. And there's a lot to figure out after that point, but that's the fulcrum of the gospel. A gift and receipt of that gift. So friends, Jesus is good. Do you see it that way? Yeah. Amen. Well, let's pray.